been told and seeing this very important consultant basically telling me that my heart isn't working properly and I have to be very careful. Yeah, of course it was a scare. Of course it was a scare. I'm Charmaine Griffiths, Chief Executive of the British Heart Foundation and host of this special series of podcasts celebrating 60 years of pioneering research into heart and circulatory disease. As part of this series, I wanted to speak to some of our ambassadors and VIP supporters to learn more about their own personal health journeys and how the BHF's research has played a role in transforming or even saving their lives or those of loved ones. Hello, in today's episode, I'm speaking to Roger Black, three times Olympic medal winner, public speaker, owner of Roger Black Fitness and holder of an MBE. Um, we're absolutely thrilled that Roger is also an ambassador for the British Heart Foundation. Um, Roger, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Charmaine. Lovely. Looking forward to chatting to you. Absolutely. Me too. You've won three Olympic medals and a whole host of other medals across uh, world championships, European championships and Commonwealth Games. And you did all of this with a heart condition. So how does it feel looking back on those achievements now? Um, well, the good thing about it is that the older you get, the better you become in everyone's memories. So it's brilliant. So actually, <laughs> um, you know, my greatest achievement was winning the Olympic silver medal in the 400 metres behind the great Michael Johnson. But, but actually, if you, if you did a poll of people in the country, yeah, a lot of people think I won the Olympic Games. It's brilliant because they, oh, Roger, I've heard of him. He must have won the won a, won Olympic, <laughs> he's Olympic champion. So I, I have actually, the older I get, the more I get introduced as Olympic champion. And I never correct people. Um, but no, look, it, it was a long time ago. Um, but I live it every day because it's, it's, it's with me and everything I do it, it is based around my athletic career. But you know, with, with, with today in mind, the, the most interesting part of my story has to be that from the age of 11, I was diagnosed with, with um, um, a, um, a leaking heart valve. So my, my aortic valve doesn't work properly. So I have heart disease. I live with it. I live with it today, but I lived with it through my whole athletic career um, and didn't really talk about it um, because I didn't want it to be an excuse. But it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one. It's definitely it's definitely different. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it is definitely different. And um, yeah. for those people who might not know what a leaky aortic valve is or, yeah. or what that is, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, I have a aortic uh, regurgitation. So basically, um, in fact, it was interesting because all my children have had have had the scan because to see if it had been passed on to them, and and, that, and none of them have got it. Um, but it was described beautifully to to my two boys uh, last year when they went in, age fourteen. Um, they said, "Think of a Mercedes Benz emblem, and one of the you know you've got the three things star, whatever it is, not star." And so what, one of them doesn't work very well. One, imagine one of them isn't there. So the blood gets pumped into, goes into my heart, gets pumped out of my heart, and some of it comes back. And it has done all my life. And it was, it was discovered when I went to uh, senior school, age 11, school medical. They listened, put the put stethoscope to my heart, and, and thought, well, that sounds a bit odd. And then I went to uh, Dr. Neville Conway, who was a consultant at Southampton General Hospital, age 11, and saw him every year throughout my whole school years, throughout my athletic career, once a year. Uh, had it measured, had, had all the suckers put onto me. And, and it was always monitored and has been monitored to this day um, and hasn't, well, clearly wasn't a problem. It wasn't something that affected me, but it was a worry. It was definitely a worry. My father was a GP and it was a great worry for him all the time. Um, I wasn't allowed to do uh, competitive sports at school in the early days, which was interesting. Um, and then, then 
they they allowed me to. I never never did cross country, which was brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah, great. Um, but, and and, and I, I, it's, it's, you can tell the way I'm talking about it. It's a very strange thing for me to talk about because I've been very fortunate. And I would sit in the waiting room every year at Southampton General Hospital, surrounded by other patients who would have the same diagnosis as me, but had clearly affected their lives dramatically. So I was very fortunate that although I have the same condition as many people, I'm one of the lucky ones where that condition, for whatever reason, hasn't affected me physically yet. As I get older, I'm much more respectful of my condition. I don't push it when I exercise. I do exercise, but I don't push it like I did as an Olympic athlete. I never will. I, the day I retired, I stopped doing that. And I think subconsciously you know, respecting my heart more then. Um, and it's very odd for me to be t talking about it. Um, but that's why I'm an, I'm an ambassador for British Heart Foundation, because it's legitimate and it's authentic. I, I, and that's really important to me that, that um, you know, I'm not just somebody who's saying, oh, yes, I support the British Heart Foundation, which is brilliant. You know, I can actually talk about it from a, a, a genuine point of view. Well, and we're deeply grateful for your support and that authenticity and also your spirit shines through in how you, you talk about your life, actually. So thank you for sharing it with us. Um, if I could take you back to that kind of 11 year old uh, um, Roger and that yes. moment of, of diagnosis. Do you remember it? Do you remember how it felt? Yeah. And, um... Well, it was just odd. It was just really odd because, you see, I was that kid who could run faster than everybody. I was that kid who lived for sport. You couldn't get me inside. I was outside kicking a football every day of my life. And then age 11, I went to Portsmouth Grammar School, had the medical and was told that I couldn't, that, you know, it was, it was dramatic. And then suddenly found myself in hospital, having suckers put all over my body, so having an echocardiogram, seeing, you know, now, now you can get MRI scans. But back then it was, it was relatively basic and being told and seeing this, you know, this very important consultant basically telling me that my heart isn't working properly and I have to be very careful. Um, yeah, of course it was a scare. Of course it was a scare. Very odd to be at school sitting on the touchlines when I was, you know, should have been on the wing in rugby. Um, and because I was monitored and they realised that I was okay, I was then allowed to gradually do sport again. But, you know, like any kid, you just get on with it. And, and I think the thing is, because I didn't feel ill, nothing, you know, I, I didn't have any symptoms. So therefore your brain sort of blocks it out. And, and, and I've only ever had symptoms once uh, or I've only had one scare in my life with this, which is when I was an athlete and I got very ill. And the worry when you have um, um, heart valve disease is um, um, getting um, bacterial endocarditis, so getting that, that infection on the valve, which is why I'd always have antibiotic cover when I went to the dentist. That was odd. Um, and I was very, very ill. And I spent a week in Southampton General Hospital being, having my bloods tested every day, all day. And, and it turned out I had something called psittacosis, which is from parrots. I don't know, but it, but the, yeah, but that was the only time I had the real scare, and it was real. Um, but yeah, that that eleven year old kid was scared, but, but but I didn't feel ill, and I think that's the difference. So I just got on with it. My father worried all the time. His his biggest worry, however, was was when I ran the London Marathon for charity. He didn't like that. I did that when I was when I was thirty two, uh, thirty four, and uh, he didn't like that. I never did that again. But he always, only my close inner circle knew about it as an athlete. Chris Akabusi knew about it. My, my coaches knew about it. Um, and my father would always speak to Chris Akabusi and say, you know, how is he? Is he okay? But he never actually, you know, he never got an answer from me. But I was fine. <laughs> I was one of the lucky ones.
So you mentioned your dad was a GP and clearly yeah. worried. Did he ever try to influence uh, your choices or stop you from uh, No, my, my father was amazing, actually, because um, one of the other interesting things about my story is I never joined an athletics club as a kid. So I loved sport. I never I went to a grammar school and I never thought I, I never con considered that one day I would go to the Olympics or I would athletics would be my career. I was going to be a doctor, actually. I was going to follow my father's footsteps. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but that was that was the plan. I was at a grammar school. You get your O-levels, you get your A-levels, and you go to university. Um, and my father never – we would have athletics clubs knocking on the door saying, this, 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 it's a crime, this boy should be running. You know. But my, I, I was so busy playing rugby and football and cricket and tennis, and none of my friends had athletics. It wasn't a very social sport. So I was never pushed to do it. My father never pushed me. And then I um, – I messed up my A-levels and I had a year off to retake my mass A-level exam. I didn't get into Bart's Hospital. I got rejected and I took a year off. And that's when I joined Southampton Athletics Club. And then it became fun because I was training with these amazing athletes. Two had just come back from Los Angeles Olympics, uh, Chris Akabusi, who many people will know, and the late Todd Bennett. And, and suddenly I found out that I wasn't just good. I was actually potentially really good um, and, and was running internationally within a few months. Um, I did actually read medicine briefly at Southampton University, but my life had changed. By then I was European junior champion and, and so I left after the first term and pursued athletics as a career. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a strange, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting one, but uh, you know, it's never been straightforward my career. But um, I, I don't look back and see the heart as something that held me back. Uh, I see it as something that I had, but because I didn't have the symptoms, I think this is really important because, of course, symptoms are very important. If you, you must see the symptoms and feel the symptoms. I was always aware that I should have maybe been more out of breath than the next person in training, but I wasn't. I had very good recovery and training. I was running fast. I had no pain in my heart. So clearly it wasn't affecting me. And and there is a, I mean, there is a theory. It's it's not a necessarily a strong theory. But when I retired, um, well, when Neville, Neville Conway, my first consultant, retired, he he chuckled and said, you know, I do have a theory that maybe this has helped you, because actually I had a very slow heartbeat. I still have a very slow heartbeat, and he thinks my heart from a young age has overcompensated for its deficiency, and because of that, it's become stronger, and that may have helped me as an athlete. Now I don't know if that's true, but uh, yeah, it, it, who knows. You mentioned that you took quite a lot of care to keep the circle of people who knew about your condition yeah, quite good. small and um, how lovely that your dad and Chris Akabusi had that kind of quiet discussion now and again. Why was it so important to you to keep that um, circle really tight? I think I think it was very clear to me um, that when you're when you're pursuing something like, you know, international athletics and you're trying to be one of the very best in the world and you're incredibly focused, you don't you learn to only control the controllables. You learn not to worry about the things you can't control. And, and, and I think I had, one of the things I was good at, it's not necessarily a good trait, by the way, in, in, <laughs> in normal life. Um, I was very good at blocking things out. And I think subconsciously, or even consciously, but definitely subconsciously, I did not want to be the athlete that had the heart problem. I did not want to be I didn't want it to be an excuse for me. I didn't want to focus on it, but I also didn't want it to become a public. It wasn't a, you know, if someone wanted to find out, they could find out. It wasn't, you know, you could easily find out, but I never talked about it as an athlete. I've talked about it far more in retirement, but it was, and I think because I just didn't want it to be a label and I didn't want it to be an excuse. 
Um, and, and, I can, and I can honestly tell you, I didn't think about it. I really didn't because you're so tired. You're training so hard. You're so focused. You've got so many other things to think about. I never once thought, well, how's my heart? It, it, I, honestly, I didn't. It, it, it wasn't something that I, I would consider. I do think about it more now. Now I'm older. I'm 55 now. I'm much more respectful to my condition. But back then, no, I, you, you just get so, so focused on what you're doing and on your performance and on your body and how you're running and how you're training. You don't want to focus on anything that might hold you back. And focusing on my heart probably would have been something that I think could have been that that part of me could have just not been 100 percent. I said, oh, well, of course, you know, I've got a dodgy heart, so it's OK that I'm not running well. And I never wanted to be like that. So that sense of drive and, and kind of determination comes through so strongly from you. So how hard or easy did you find it to compartmentalise that or just put it out of your mind? Good, easy, easy, easy. It was easy until that one day a year when I had to have my appointment to drive along to Southampton General Hospital and sit in the waiting room and look around the waiting room. And people would be looking at me back then because I was probably quite well known back then. And it was odd because I always knew that I would walk, I'd have all my tests done and then I'd walk into the consultant's room and a part of me always knew there was a chance that if things had regressed, they would tell me I couldn't run again. I, could, I had to stop running because I didn't know. Um, that never happened, by the way. You know, it was always monitored. I mean, I'm, in many ways, I'm very lucky. Most people don't get their heart monitored from age 11 every year of their life. I mean, you know, that's, that's a privilege. Um, and even that, especially now with the MRI scans and whatever. So I went to my appointment. That was the that was that one day a year where it was my focus. Driving to Southampton, thinking this is weird, and then just respecting it, and you know, getting all the tests done and knowing, okay, this is real for for today. This is real, but for the rest of the year, it's not. I could compartmentalise it. By the way, there's one year I didn't turn up, or I didn't turn up. I couldn't make my appointment. Uh, inverted commas. That was 1996. It was about. It was a few months before the Olympics in Atlanta. Because I knew myself well enough to know that if I'd walked in that door and the doctor had said, or never Conway had said, I'm sorry, you know, your heart's not going great, I, I still would have gone to the Olympics. I wouldn't have, I, would, I wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't have not gone. I was going to ask I, you that. So you, you uh, deliberately skipped a year for the psychology of it? Couldn't make it. Just too tricky to make that appointment. It just it was too busy. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. I really did. And, and, and. Because I just knew that it, it didn't matter what I was told. That wasn't, I wasn't going to, to not go to the Olympics. How did your family and loved ones uh, feel about that? Were they as, as clear as you were? No, they, they probably didn't even know that I'd missed the appointment. So, you know, by then I was 30. It didn't, it didn't matter. So, um, yeah, it, it wasn't the only person who talked about it to me regularly was my father. It was something he always asked me. You know, how, how are you? Are you more out of breath? How's your, how, he, he was just, because I guess he knew the truth. He understood it as a doctor and he had heart condition. Um, but it wasn't anything. I, 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 if, if you asked any of my friends, they would say they, we never talked about it. Do you um, know any other athletes who perform with a heart condition? No, I don't, which is interesting. And um, I don't, I don't actually. Um, no, it's a good, great question. I, I'm not aware of it. I'm very aware, and you see these stories so many times, of people who are really fit, they go out on a run, run, and the next thing you know, they've had a stroke or something. And I always, when I hear those stories, I see how lucky I am, because, of course, I was monitored every year. These are people that probably have never had their heart monitored, and they had no idea they had heart, a heart, heart condition. They had no idea they had a leaking heart. They had no idea, because it had never been picked up. It's not something that you necessarily go to the doctors for if you haven't got any symptoms. 
And I didn't have symptoms age 11. I was just heard. You could hear it. It's very clear, by the way. Apparently, it's very clear. It's not a difficult thing to hear in my, in my case. <laughs> you can hear that there's a hissing. There's a hiss where the blood regurgitates. You can hear it. Thank you. You know, it's been a pleasure to speak to some fantastic um, people who are BHF yeah, ambassadors, sure. including, for example, Graham uh, Sunez and last week, Scott Allen. And just uh, something that unites everybody, including yourself, is that sense of determination and drive sure. to, to, to kind of power uh, through life, actually, and to, to, to manage yeah. and, and do what it takes to kind of uh, get what's important to them in their lives right, as well as kind of look after themselves health-wise. I, 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 think, I think that comes, that's a given for if you're a sports person. I think um, it's, it's very interesting being a sports person because, of course, when you're young and you're doing sport, you're just doing what you do. It's not until you get old and you look back and you go, that's, there are so many great positives of that mindset, but it's not a balanced mindset. You know, it doesn't necessarily translate into a balanced life. So that's why a lot of sports people do struggle in retirement because they love this, this clarity. They love this routine, this, this determination, this focus, because you know that you're on borrowed time as a sports person. And you know that in my case, every four years, there's an Olympic Games and you know you need to be as ready as you possibly can be. And that's a great trait to have if you're dealing with a problem because you tend to focus on solutions rather than the problem because you're always focusing forward. It's, it's the nature of the sports person. Um, the, the, the flip side to that is that the sports person can often push things too far and not respect their body and not respect their conditions. So therefore, with someone with a heart condition, you have to get the balance right. You have to which is why as an athlete, I never focused on it because of course I needed to be driven. I need to be focused, but, but you always know that you have to be respectful for your condition, uh, any condition, but particularly a heart condition because they are often very, um, they're not visible. It's not like when you break your foot, it's not like when you've, it, it, it's, it's, it's a hidden problem that, that if you don't know about it can catch, can catch you. So I, I'm very lucky that I was diagnosed age 11 because I often think, what if I wasn't diagnosed age 11? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's it's it, it, you, a sports person will think and behave a certain way, and and that is a good thing as long as it's it, there's a balance to it as well. I think it's important to get help and it's to get and, and to get advice. But one of the things I also think is really important is no one knows your body better than you do. No one knows your symptoms better than you do. And one of the challenges is that if, if you think, oh, I'm going to recover like this and I'm supposed to feel like this and you, you don't, it, it can confuse you, especially nowadays. You can look it, look, look it up on Google or whatever. So I think, I, think you, I think there's a degree of accountability that we all have to have for our bodies and our, and our recovery. We must get the advice. We must listen to the advice. But we should also have a degree of confidence in ourselves and listening to and, and listening to our bodies ourselves. And I think as an athlete, I did that all the time naturally because I had to. It was more like, oh, why is my knee hurt? Why is my knee hurting? Why is my hip hurting? This and the other. But I was also always aware of my heart. And and that and 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 I never you know, I I I I didn't I didn't feel that it was a problem. Um, but I think that balance between take advice take it easy but also take accountability for your recovery is very important and i think i'm sure that's the case with it with, with people who do overcome problems they, they tend to take that accountability
Great reflection. I was going to ask you about your career journey. So you clearly mm. had a, a, had a plan and had a trajectory mapped out for and yeah. have worked that. So mm. as you're kind of starting to think about your retirement and, mm. and um, I guess uh, two quick questions. So one is uh, how much of a factor was thinking about your heart condition part of thinking about the, the retirement part of your journey? Mm-hmm. And, mm. and since then, what kind of role has that played in how you've changed your habits following retirement? I think, well, professionally, my heart hasn't played a part in anything I've done. Um, so I retired back in 1998. I was 32. I was very fortunate. I'd had a great Olympics two years earlier and I was ready to go. So I'm not one of those athletes who retired early. I'm not one of those athletes who spent the last 10 years of their career chasing the good old days and not getting back and then retiring. Very fortunate and had opportunities. Um but you know, regarding my, my heart, I mean, there's no doubt about it. You get two types of sports people when they retire. You get those that carry on training really hard and work out all their lives because they love the thrill of training. They love competition and they find it elsewhere. So my friend Daley Thompson is still you know, a fitness trainer, still wears a tracksuit every day, fit, incredibly fit. <laughs> and then you get people like me and Chris Akabusi who sort of stop <laughs> and, and do it play games and have a bit of fun, but don't necessarily go down the gym and don't do it. Until we get to a certain age where we start to think, hang on, things are getting, putting on the weight <laughs> and stuff. So we're both running a lot. I've always run. I've always jogged every day. I, I, I'm a great fan of, as you get older, of just, just moderate exercise. But the key is to keep moving. And I, and I really believe this. I think the key is to keep moving. I'm very lucky. I have, I've never spent a day of my life sitting down. Um, I... I I, um, unless I'm driving. So, uh, uh, you know, j- just keep moving. And I do moderate exercise, but I do it every day. So I run every morning with, with my wife, Jules, and the dogs. And, and then, you know, I might go on an exercise bike or whatever later. I, I, I'm not a fitness fanatic, but I'm a big fan of moving. And I think that's really important. Um, and, and I'm more aware of my diet now I'm older as well. It's so important. It's great advice. Getting moving every day and uh, doing everything about it. It's so important for your mental well-being as well as your yeah. physical well-being, isn't it? Yeah, and it's just that. Just that. You know, go for a walk. If, make those choices to keep moving, because the sedentary life is is the thing that gets you. I've got friends that that work out really hard and then they sit down for eight hours behind a computer because they have to. It's their job, and but they'll go to the gym and do a great exercise. But I, I'm a great believer that if you can just keep your body moving that's a healthier attitude than, than sitting down for ages, but then going to the gym. And I think it's that, that active life. And that's maybe one of the things that's come out of, of lockdown that people have, have taken those choices to move and get out of the house more because, because of course, in the early days, we, we weren't allowed to, you know, had an hour, didn't you? Everyone used that hour, didn't they? Used it wisely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, if anyone's listening to our podcast today and needs a bit of inspiration to kind of put the headphones in and go out and listen to it walking rather than sat down, I'm I'm sure you've just given them that as well. So thank you. That's a great example. That's a great example. I was going to ask you what advice you might give to other people who are perhaps born with heart problems or have conditions detected early. I'm I'm, I'm really conscious when I'm asked this because, and hopefully I've got this across, I I count myself as very fortunate because I still find it strange that I... You know, I have chronic heart disease because you know, I do. What I have is classed as chronic heart disease. But, you know, clearly, you know, there's chronic heart disease and there's chronic heart disease. So give advice to people is quite hard, isn't it? Because I'm not somebody who's had a really, you know, a heart condition that's really affected my life. So obviously, if I was to give advice, you know, get that medical help, get that support. Find, I'm a great believer in life that if you, if you want to deal with something or achieve with something, I think, 
I think you need to go and find somebody who's lived through it as well before you because success leaves clues and people will pass down those little tips that maybe you won't get from from Google or you won't get from your doctor. But if you meet another patient, someone who's got your condition, I think that's really important. So I think networks of people that that have got the same condition is a, is a really good thing. So so you're not alone. Go and find somebody and, and, and find out what they did well and maybe what they didn't do well. <laughs> um, but I think there is support out there. Um, but, but, but it comes back to, to take ownership of your recovery, take ownership of your condition. Because we, I think one of the challenges is, is if, we, if we wait to be told what to do, you know, listen to your body, listen to your, and, and keep moving. You know, if people say you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. Well, challenge, but listen to your body. But I do think, certainly with heart disease, keeping moving, eating healthily, you know, rather than just stopping, I, I assume that's the right advice. But, uh, but absolutely yeah, is yeah, yeah. Mm. that balance everything in moderation healthy diet moderate mm. activity and and taking that all that, that step i think to seek support we've heard so many people say we've got heart support groups that are um many heart patients come together just to share experiences and have empathy with each other as well as learn from as you said tips and hints so important to have that yeah because i don't i don't know i mean now we're talking about it because i don't talk about this very often you 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 can you can come up with theories you know, I don't know if my heart condition has not been a problem because I've always exercised every day of my life. Now, when I was an Olympic athlete, you're exercising to a degree that isn't normal. But the point is, I've always moved. and I've always exercised. So my heart has never had, had it's never had never been allowed to to, to, to to stop. You know, it's never been allowed to slow down. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing. So maybe I, I am an example of that. But I don't know. I mean, I, I really, really don't know. I was going to ask you a little bit about what that journey's taught you about yourself. What have you learned about mm. yourself, um, perhaps through having this condition? Uh, I've learned that I'm quite good at blocking things out. <laughs> well, there's no doubt about that. I mean, from, from the age of 11, I think I blocked this out. And I'm pleased I did, if I'm honest, because I think I had a choice. I could have used it as an excuse. I could have got worried about it. I could have got anxious about it. But I didn't. I didn't. I ignored it. I, I pushed it right down. Um, and I think that was good as a young kid and that was good as an athlete. But I'm not sure as you get older that you should keep pushing things down. I think we have to, to face things and respect things. So I think that would probably be the biggest lesson that get that balance right. You know, don't focus on something because you get what you focus on in life. So if you focus on I've got a heart condition, then you'll run with someone like with a heart condition. Um, so maybe that that's been a lesson to me, but I, I, I honestly don't think, and I, 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 I consciously, I don't feel my heart has played a, my heart condition has played a big part in my, my life as I sit here now at 55 consciously, it might've done sub subconsciously, but consciously it's not something I've dwelled on. It really isn't. Thank you for being so generous and sharing your experiences and how it felt as well as the events. It's, it's no. just really inspiring to hear it from you. And I think you've touched on this earlier, but I'll ask you again. So what was it that inspired you to become an ambassador for the British Heart Foundation? I get asked, not as much now as I used to, but in the old days, I would get asked regularly to be a patron for charities. And, and it's a really difficult thing because you never want to say no. I mean, it's awful. You do learn how to say no, by the way. And then very early on, I said, right, there's got to be a criteria here because you don't want to suddenly be involved in, and help lots and lots of different charities. But you, I said, right, what I want to do is I want to be involved with a few properly. And my criteria was if I'm going to be involved, it has to be authentic. There has to be a reason. There has to be a legitimate 
I have to feel this. There has to be something. So the British Heart Foundation is obviously because I, I have a heart condition. It's it's a natural thing for me to do. So that was the that, that was it. And and the other charities I, I I help out with the heart valve charity, um, which is very specific, obviously to to to, to my condition. Um, I have a nephew with cystic fibrosis, so I I work I do some stuff with the cystic fibrosis trust and a few other local charities. But but every charity I do get involved with. I have a connection. This one clearly is a very deep connection. And and if me being involved can can make a difference and people can connect because I am somebody with a heart condition. Once again I say I'm not yeah, there's a heart condition and there's heart conditions. It different people get affected in different ways. I respect that. But um yeah, it was it was very, very easy to be to be an ambassador. And we're very grateful for all of your support and everything you've done for us. And a passionate as well, as, as you know, at the heart of BHF, we're a research-led organisation yep. investing and have done for 60 years in cutting-edge cardiovascular research to help save and improve lives, including around um, valve uh, understanding and disease. So we're passionate about investing research in this area. So your support means a huge amount to us. Well, well I have to say, Sean, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of that. And I remember in the early days, asking the question well what would happen especially because of the dental thing i've always you know I, I actually i said earlier there's only one day a year it wasn't it was more than one day a year because whenever i had to go to the dentist i had to get antibiotic cover um right. i think that's changed yep. that's no longer the case but but back then it was um and and i remember asking well what would happen if i did get bacterial endocarditis and that time i was in hospital when, when i thought i had it and they said well you would have to have a replacement valve um, and my mother-in-law, who's now 90, had a replacement valve put in eight years ago and it changed her life, mm. utterly changed her life. So I've seen how medicine has, and in that space of medicine, has gone on leaps and bounds from when I was a young kid. So I'm not scared of it. I'm not scared of it. I know that that if it ever came to that for me, and maybe it will, maybe it won't, the way that medicine has has improved from over the years is dramatic and of course the other thing is you know when i started as an 11 year old going to the consultants very different now you know i have the mri scan i have it's you know it's not as messy it's not it's not <laughs> it's all done much quicker quicker it's incredible so the work that the british heart foundation does uh, has made such a difference and and you know so maybe it's altruistic here so maybe i'm actually you know helping out because it's going to help me one day i hope i hope i never need it but you never know you never know well, brilliantly put, and I think most of us will be touching our families by heart and circulatory disease, and it's what gets us out of bed at the British Heart Foundation to come to sure. that research to make a difference. So mm. I'm so glad your mother-in-law had such a good experience and felt so much oh, better as well. Oh, it, phenomenal. incredible. I, I mean, phenomenal. And you know, she was old. She was 82, so 81. So it was touching her. Do we, don't we? You know, is, is she going to recover from this? Oh, my goodness me. She was awful for two months. I mean, I mean, I mean, no, no, she really was. It, and then suddenly it switched on, and it it was so uplifting to see it changed her life, just completely like changed her life. Best thing she ever did. How wonderful! So, yeah, well, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to hear you share your story actually and do it with such generosity and openness. It's uh, I know inspiring to me and will be to so many of our listeners uh, as well. So I was going to say a huge thank you for for joining us today for um, this podcast, but also for everything you do for us as a British Heart Foundation. You're uh, it's um, a, pleasure. a big big part of us and our BHF team and our efforts to make uh, the world a better place. So thank you. Thank you. The British Heart Foundation is celebrating 60 years of saving lives through pioneering research. Over the years, we've invested millions into heart valve disease research 
with recent projects focusing on improving the detection of faulty valves or developing a new generation of biomechanical valves. Thousands of people in the UK have heart valve replacements each year, and many benefit from the research and advances made possible by the BHF. Each day in the UK, around 13 babies are diagnosed with a congenital heart condition, which means a heart problem has developed before the baby is born. We've supported crucial breakthroughs that have improved the care for patients with congenital heart disease, from birth to adulthood. When the BHF was founded in 1961, the majority of babies diagnosed with severe congenital heart disease did not make it past their first birthday. Today, eight out of 10 survived to adulthood, thanks in part to research we funded. As we celebrate our 60th birthday, our eyes remain firmly fixed on the future and what we hope to achieve over the next 60 years. We want a cure for heart failure, better treatments for stroke, ways to prevent vascular dementia and so much more. The BHF have been part of breakthroughs like heart transplants and pacemakers, stents and clot-busting drugs, and our goals for the decades ahead are even more ambitious. If you would like to fundraise in honour of the BHF 60th and be part of helping us continue to save lives, then please visit bhf.org.uk forward slash birthday. For more inspiring stories from our high-profile supporters and our patient community, please listen to and follow the ticker tapes on the BHF website or wherever you get your podcasts. And to everyone listening, thank you for joining us. I'm Charmaine Griffiths. Bye for now. The stories, recollections and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of our special guest and not those of the BHF. If you, our listeners, have any health concerns, please seek advice from your GP or health professional. For more information about any of the conditions discussed in this podcast, please visit BHF's website, bhf.org.uk.